Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 49. Thank you, worship team. Can I do today's sermon a little bit different than we have in the past? Just going to go through a little bit more verse by verse today, just because there are 12 sons, there are 12 prophecies, and we're going to briefly touch on each one of them. Now, not every son in Genesis 49 ends up having a prophecy that is significant or that is earth-shattering yet. I'm not going to say they won't, but right now in time that I've seen, I don't see. I got about four or five that I, I've seen. I know, it's, I know the, the prophecies, and I can fill you in on some of them, and we will touch on those. However, what I do know is that God has a plan. God has a plan for each one of our lives. He is watching over us, and he wants us to endure for the long haul. And that's important for each one of us. So as we read, I'm just going to go through and hit the the highlights, especially the first 27 or so verses, and then uh, we'll leave that last chunk and kind of explain where we're going from there, okay? It says, Then Jacob called together all his sons and said, Gather around me, and I will tell you what will happen to each of you in the days to come. Come and listen, you sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father. It says Jacob, um, many a times, at, at this late in the game in the book of Genesis, we would call him Israel because God has changed his name. God has made him um, his house and is going to make him the way that he wants him. And Jacob, many times when he mentions the word Jacob, he's talking about his old self. And when he's talking about his new self, he would refer to him as Israel. So we see that happening here as well. It says, Jacob called together all his sons and gather around me and I will tell you what will happen to each of you in the last days to come. It says, come and listen, sons of Jacob. He starts with the sons of Jacob. Remember who you were and listen to Israel, your father. And this is the life change that would happen to each one of you. Now, as I was reading some of the commentaries, it is, I don't know if it's Jewish legend, I don't know what it is, and that's what we would say, but it has been said that Jacob received this vision like this and lost it like this, and so this is what they were able to record. Now, again, that's Jewish legend. I think God had written in his Bible what he wanted written in his Bible, and so that's what we have today, right? Some of it's vague, some of it's not. So... Again, Jacob's sons, they gather around him. He knows his time and that what he needs to do is invest in his family. And so he pulls his family in and he sees that um, we have changed from Jacob to Israel. And we're going to, um, from the past to the future, we're talking about some of the older things that we've gone through and, and how that affects us and some of the newer things that is going to affect you in the future. And we also know that is from our old sinful self, right? And to our relationship with the Lord, our new self. So the struggle that we all face today and the warring within our spirit, it is really defined well in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, I know there's the things that I'm supposed to do, but I don't do them. I do the things that I want to do, my sin nature wants to do. 
And so I have this thing warring within me, and woe is me. Where's my help? What am I going to do? And then he comes in after this long, I don't know, dissertation of the struggle of sin, right? And he comes into Romans chapter 8, and he says, Therefore, there is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's it mean to be condemned? It means that I can be charged, that I have sin on me, and I need to uh, get it right before the Lord. But if I come to the Lord in the name of Christ Jesus, then I, have, I can have fellowship with God, right? And so there is a conclusion, there is a aha moment that Paul says that on my own strength, I can't get through this own struggle. I cannot do this. Jacob has come to that conclusion as well. I have sinned. I have messed up. I have fallen for this false grief that I thought Joseph was dead. But God, in his mercy, brought me back to life. My son, I found him again. I get to spend 17 years with him. This is the last days of my life. And here I get to fellowship with them and praise God for that. So I'm going to remember that struggle because that struggle helps me get to where I am but I'm going to rejoice that I've been found by the Lord once again. Make sense? It's kind of important as we go. Because God's got a plan, doesn't he? God's got a plan. He is working through this. And so we see another man struggling. Let's look at Reuben in verse 2. It says, Reuben, you are my, you are my firstborn, my strength, the child of my vigorous youth. You, you are first in rank and in power. But you are unruly as a flood, and you will be first no longer. For you went to bed with my wife, and you defiled my marriage couch. Wow. He slept with Bilhah, one of his half-brother's moms. And um, Baruch said, the way it's written, it wasn't like a one-time deal kind of thing. Um, and so it would have to be, I would think, a little bit more repeated because Jacob doesn't really get that mad. He usually doesn't discipline his sons too much, but he does not. Reuben is probably his least favorite <laughs> out of all of them. He's maybe his biggest disappointment, which is kind of sad, but it's also deserving if he keeps going back to uh, the same habits. And so we find that there are consequences for our actions. Reuben loses the title of firstborn. It warns us in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 specifically, that we need to, men especially, drink water from our own cistern. What does that mean? It means that we need to keep sex within the marriage bed, right? When we have a marriage and we're bonded together by God, that is something that is sacred and that needs to stay that way because when it goes outside of that... We see, especially in the book of Genesis, it seems that sexual sin has a little bit more consequences than regular sins. You also see that in 1 Corinthians quite a bit, too. Paul really preaches against that. And every time we warn throughout the Bible, it will say to keep God first, to love God, love others. And many of the things that they even give to the early church is flee from sexual immorality. 
It's going to be a snare. It's going to pull you down. And it's something that we need to watch out for. So I think Reuben's, he really got a good case of Matthew 19, 30. It says, but many who are the greatest will now be the least important. And those who seem to be the least important will now be the greatest among them. We see the firstborn Reuben disobey his father, disgrace his father, disobey the Lord as well, and he is taken and made low. And you see the one that was made low, which was Joseph, that was brought to death and uh, thought to be dead, uh, be made, put into a position that he was high, because God's got a plan. God has worked it out for them. So we have another few zealous men Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are two of a kind. Their weapons are instruments of violence. May I never join in their meetings. May I never be a party to their plans. For in their anger, they murdered men and they crippled oxen just for sport. A curse on their anger, for it is fierce. A curse on the wrath, for it is cruel. I will scatter them among the descendants of Jacob, and I will disperse them throughout Israel. Well, where is Simeon's promised land? Where do they get? Do I have that map up there? Hey, look at there. I'm actually on the ball today. Okay, so you can't really see it very well, but down here in the bottom, this brown area has got a kind of a greenish brown area in the center. Um, it is, um, that's where Simeon is. Okay, Simeon eventually gets dissolved into the house of Judah, okay? And so we see that as well. We see this is kind of, you just leave that map up there. It's probably good to just leave it there. So we have Simeon and, and Levi. Simeon um, and Reuben, we see he settled on the east side of the Jordan, right? What happens to the tribes that land on the east side of the Jordan? They are the first to fall because they're not secluded. They can't do that. Um, they're not supposed to. What happens to the tribe of Levi? You look up there and you look on your map and you won't be able to find the tribe of Levi in there. And there's only 11 territories or so. Well, there's 12 because there's Eskar and Manasseh instead of Joseph, right? So you're looking for Levi. You're not finding him. But what happens in Exodus? You see the same zeal that Levi had to avenge his sister and he goes and they kill the towns are the same zeal that he goes after his grandsons and great-great-grandsons probably. 400 years later, his descendants, they go into the tent of the high priest that is defiling uh, the Lord's temple. They're basically having a major orgy right in front of God on the mountain of God. And Levi runs, or one of his descendants of Aaron, runs in, spears the guy and kills the prostitute, kills the guy, and they die right in the tent. And he says, because you've done this, because of your zeal, we are going to, you're going to be the priests of, of all the Israel. And they stopped the plague from happening, stopped what was going on because he was zealous for the house of the Lord. So is zeal bad? It says, the zeal of your house will consume me. It says that in about Jesus, right? So does is zeal bad? No. 
Jesus uses zeal, which is anger under control. He flips the temple tables, right? Were they supposed to be where they were at? They were in the middle of the temple where the, where the Gentiles were supposed to hold court, right? Where they were supposed to be able to pray to God. And they had started to turn it into a marketplace. And Jesus shooed out all the, the animals and things. And he flipped over the money changers' tables saying, this, they don't belong here. They knew it. He knew it. And the people that let them rent the space knew it um, because they were making money. They were being corrupted in their hearts over money. And so there is anger needs to be under control. Anger can flare out of control very easy. It's probably one of the easiest sins to flare out of control, isn't it? And it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 27, it says, don't let sin, don't sin by letting your anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. What's a devil's foothold look like? It was described to me like this. Uh, What do we see later on in Ephesians? We see the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, and you see that the devil is shooting at them with flaming arrows. So I look at the flaming arrows and I look at different sins that we put in our life. An arrow is not going to hit you if it hits you in the breastplate, is it? It's not going to hurt you if it hits you in the shield. It's not going to hurt you if it hits you in your helmet. Where an arrow is going to hurt you is when it gets in the joints, right? And it's not a vital place on your body that might kill you, but it's really going to irritate you. So what happens when that arrow hits and it gets you in the arm and you ignore it? It's going to fester, isn't it? It's just like sin. Sin, it hits you in the arm and it's not going to hurt you that much, but it festers. And if you allow sin to fester, then it gets worse. And what happens if a second arrow hits you and opens that wound up a little bit more? Now it's serious. Now it's something that you've got to draw your attention to, and if you don't draw your attention to it, it will kill you. And that's what I look at this as a foothold for the devil. If you don't look at your anger and keep it under control on a regular basis, then you will give a foothold for the devil to come in and have his way with you. And that's just not good. It's not good at all. God has a plan for that, doesn't he? He has the full armor of God. And if we put on our full armor of God, if we stand firm against the devil, then we can stand firm on his word and we can walk away from those arrows. And we can have community in the church body so they can help us pull those arrows out. Because how many times do we see um, that arrow sticking out of our own arm? Sometimes we ignore that problem and we need somebody to say, hey, you you got something right there. Let me yank that, ow, that hurt, Um, and go from there. Verse 8, the house of Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. You will grasp your enemies by the neck. All of your relatives will bow before you. Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like, Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler staff from his descendants until the coming of the one 
whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. He ties his foal to the grapevine and the colt of his donkey to choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine. He robes in blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine. His teeth are whiter than milk. Okay, so what's this mean? Reuben messed up. He is no longer allowed to have the first, firstborn uh, rights. Simeon and Levi have messed up. They're no longer to have the firstborn rights. Judah is fourth in line, and he is not perfect, is he? Remember that the line of Tamar comes from with Judah. Judah messes up there. He, he is not a holy man, that's for sure. But God gets a hold of his heart. Recall when they come walking into Egypt. Who goes before? Who goes to Pharaoh? Who sets up where they're going to um, go? It's Judah. Judah's taking this responsibility. He's taking the mantle of leadership, and it will not depart from him. This is where the king David comes from, right? Is the first king of Israel, does he come from the house of Judah? No, pastor, he doesn't. He comes from the house of Benjamin, right? Saul was a Benjamite. Okay, and we'll talk about him more later. Um, Judah has the house of David. The Messiah comes through this house, and we have a lot recorded in the Bible because of this. And this is definitely a tribe that you want to pay attention to when they show up in Scripture. When you see the house split, when you see the house split in the, later on in the Old Testament, the southern kingdom is the Jews, right? Jews is slang, it's a derogatory term for the house of Judah, okay? So it's, when we call it the house of Judah, that's not necessarily a good thing. It's not very, a nice thing to say. Um, they're the Israelites, and the Israelites have 12 different houses, the house of Judah, okay? Some may not know that. Now you do. Revelation chapter 5, 5 says, But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping, because this is when this, it's at the throne room of God, right? And only one person can break these seals, and John, the apostle, says, nobody can do this. This is hopeless. He says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Well, he's talking about Jesus Christ, right? Jesus comes from the lion of David, comes from the tribe of Judah, okay? So that's also important. God has a plan. Zebulun, he will settle by the seashore and will be... A harbor for ships, and his borders will extend to Sidon. Okay, notice he's a harbor for ships. It doesn't say he's ship shipbuilders. God never really wanted Israel to be shipbuilders. Okay, almost every time in Scripture you see ships being built, they almost always get destroyed. There's or they're not very successful. Every once in a while, I think Solomon is the only one, and I'm pretty sure he commissioned his ships from somebody else. Okay, so they were commissioned from somebody else, and I, I'm not 100% sure on that, but he might be the only one that was ex kind of successful when it came to sailing. Okay, why? 
The Jewish people don't like water. Why don't they like water? Sheol is another name for hell. It's the depths. Where do you see the depths? We see depths in water, right? Down in the depths. Okay, that's where it says it's said to be. Okay, so that's the Jewish people. Even today, you don't see um, houses on the Sea of Galilee because they they don't. It's it's gorgeous, but they just let it be because it's, it's not something they celebrate because it represents death and they want to be um, following life. So one thing about Zebulun that you see is they become a lot of soldiers for the house for the king of David because God has a plan, whether I can see it in Scripture or not. It's one of those I had a hard time finding something. Issachar, verse 14, is a sturdy donkey resting between two saddle packs when he sees how good the countryside is and how pleasant the land, he will bend his shoulder to the load and submit himself to hard labor. Again, not much said about this house, but they do go into slavery a lot. And if you look at that, it might be some foreshadowing. And it's, they were the third largest clan in all of the Exodus, and they have to submit to a lot of slave labor. Why? I don't know. But God has a plan, doesn't he? Then we come to Dan. Dan will govern his people like any other tribe in Israel. Dan will be a snake beside the road, a poisonous viper along the path that bites the horse's hooves, and its rider is thrown off. I trust in your and you for salvation, O Lord. This is an interesting prophecy. This is one of the ones that I know a little bit more about. Okay, this is where I found in that tr Jewish tradition that it was just a glimpse, and this is one of the pauses in the glimpse, and, and that last line was, okay, so one line of thinking is that the Antichrist is going to come from the house of Dan because of this, um, Dan will be a snake beside the road, the poisonous viper along the path that bites the horse's hooves, and so its rider is thrown off, that is a that alludes to back to Genesis chapter 3, um, that you will, strike your, you will crush his head and you will strike his heel when he talks to Eve about the curse. Okay? And it says, I will trust in you for salvation, O Lord, was an exclamation that this is going to be so bad that, Lord, whatever it may be, I'm going to trust in you. And they thought, uh, they thought at the time that Jacob was going to die right there. Again, that's just rumor as it goes on. So Dan was set up to be the judge, and you do see uh, many judge, judges coming out of Dan. Um, if you read the book of Judges from about chapter 13 on, most of that has to do with the tribe of Dan. You got the, uh, Samson. Samson came from the tribe of Dan. Okay? But the problem with them and with Samson he kind of amplifies the whole tribe, is they kind of do their own thing. And when they do their own thing, they fall short. They were supposed to settle in down just above. It's that dark green on the left side right next to the shore. They're supposed to settle in and then move to the southwest. Okay? The southwest, people in the southwest were too hard to conquer. Who were those people? 
They're the Philistines. Okay? What's another name for Philistines? Do you guys know? Another name for Philistine is Palestinian. Okay? It's the same, same translation. What are they still having a problem with today? The Gaza Strip. That's the exact same location that Dan was supposed to settle in and never did. They ended up moving to the north, get corrupted, and um, from this scripture, you could say all hell broke loose, or is going to, in the end times, if, if he really is. If, and they, they, I guess I'm of the belief, right up just north of Israel is the area where you're probably going to find the Antichrist will come from. Just as you look from Scripture, it's, it, there's other places that it alludes to that as well. So Dan starts down an ugly road. He never recovers. And the end of Judges, it truly turns ugly. It is one of the most disgusting passages of Scripture you'll read in all the Bible. It's at the end of Judges, and you're like, now I'm going to read it. Uh, and Benjamin doesn't fare much better in that as well. So it ends with idolatry, and it's just horrible. Yet God still has a plan, doesn't he? God has a way that he's going to go. Gad, verse 19. Gad will attack by marauding bands. He will, will attack them when they retreat. He settles in the east side of the Jordan. Um, they were some of the first to fall to idolatry, along with Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, okay? So they were on the... So God said, let's go into the promised land. They attack, they kill Og and Magog, and these kings on the east side of the Jordan, he says, okay, we want to settle in our, our families on this side. See what the Lord says. We will go in, in front of everybody. We'll do all the battling first if you let us go in first. And God allows them to settle. But they're also the first to fall because they don't have that natural barrier to keep them separate from their neighbors. Yet God has a plan. Asher will dine on rich food and produce um, food fit for kings. It is known for pr production crops. It fed the kings uh, like David. And it's still producing fine fruits today. Uh, just like it... We, it alluded to the wines of the house of Judah. Some of the best wines in the world still come from the house of Ju Judah because God has a plan. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears fruit, bears beautiful fawns. Well, where do we see Naphtali? We see it in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17 tell us that this is where Jesus and John the Baptist will start their ministry. It says, When Jesus heard that John, the Bat John had been arrested, he left Judah and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth and then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God had said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, Naphtali, or where, sorry, I jumped the line there. In Galilee, where so many Gentiles lived, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach and repent for your sins and turn to God. 
for the kingdom of heaven is near. Because God has a plan. We see all these predictions in the Old Testament. And we're talking thousands of years before Jesus and many thousands before us, right? All these things, we see that God has a plan to bring in his Savior through his Son, Jesus Christ, and rescue us. If we, he doesn't fulfill even one of those plans, he is a false prophet. Yet we know that he has been faithful and he does fulfill his plans. Now Joseph. Joseph has the most written about him. This is probably Jacob's favorite son. Joseph also deserves some of the praise because he's the spiritual house at this point leader. Joseph is the foal of a wild donkey, the foal of a wild donkey at spring. One of the wild donkeys on the ridge. Archers attack him savagely. They shoot at him and harass him, but his bow remained taut. His arms were strengthened by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the shepherd, the rock of Israel. May the God of your father help you. May the Almighty bless you with the blessings of the heavens above and the blessings of the watery depths below. And the blessings of the breast and the womb may... My Father's blessing on you surpass the blessings of my ancestors, reaching to the heights of the eternal hills. May these blessings rest on the head of Joseph, who is the prince among his brothers. Again, Jacob gives his blessing to Joseph. Okay? Gives his first fruit offerings there. Through his son Joseph, Jacob was brought back to the Lord. Jacob often had a distant relationship with the Lord. Yet here we see five different titles for the Lord. Speaking of the intimate relationship that Jacob has developed over the last 17 years. First, he calls him the mighty one of Jacob. Second, he calls him the shepherd. The third, the rock of Israel. The fourth, the, the God of your father. And finally, he calls him the almighty. Because God had a plan to bring Jacob back. Finally, we come to Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, devouring his enemies in the morning and dividing his plunder in the evening. What do we know of Benjamin? Benjamin is the pride of Israel. He was birthed in Jacob's old age. He's Rachel's final son. He's the only one of the tribes born in the promised lands. They're a bunch of proud lefties, we find out in the book of Judges. Why that's important, I'm not really sure, but they make a big deal about it, right? Uh, they're proud that they're left-handed. They're mighty warriors, um, have a lot of good things going on there. They almost get wiped out also in the book of Genesis. The men get wiped down to like 600 400, something like that, which when you started with thousands, almost 100,000s, not quite 100,000, but definitely tens of thousands, and you wipe down to 600, it's bad news. King Saul comes from the tribe of Benjamin. On the outside, he looked great. He was a head taller and very handsome man than all the other people around him. Yet he was a coward. When they went to crown him king, he was hiding among the luggage. He didn't have the heart for the Lord. Eventually, he turns to his own ways, trying to justify his actions. 
and uh, suffers the consequences of that, of death of him and his sons. He's a self-serving king trying to do it under the guise, I'm doing it all for Jesus. I'm doing it all for the Lord. He didn't do it for Jesus yet, right? For the Messiah. And he just doesn't. On the other hand, we see the apostle Paul come from the tribe of Benjamin. And so God redeems that house just as well. We also see redemption coming in the listing of genealogies. You see the tribe of Dan in one genealogy. They don't even list the tribe of Dan. And the second one, as it comes along, um, we see the tribe of Dan listed first, meaning that God can redeem his people. I thought that was interesting as well. God has a plan. Let's wrap it up with 28 through 33. And I got four points, which are short. Then we'll be done. Yes. It means we're going to be done today, service, early. Communion and everything. It's craziness. Unless God has other plans, which he could. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said as he told his sons goodbye. He blessed each one of them with an appropriate message. And then Jacob instructed them, Soon I will die and join my ancestors. Bury me with my father and my grandfather in the cave and the field of Ephron the Hittite. This is the cave of the field of Mitchpelah before Mamre in Canaan that Abraham bought from Ephron the Hittite as a permanent burial site. Then Abraham and his wife Sarah are buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah are buried. There and there I bury Leah. It is the plot of land, the cave that my grandfather Abraham bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished this charge to his sons, he drew his feet onto the bed, breathed his last, and joined his ancestors in death. Title this the end. I title it the end because it's it's actually the first end. The second chapter is the second end, right? Because the second chapter is all about um, how both Jacob and Joseph die. Promise, promise me you'll put me back, take me back to the promised land. Why are they out of the promised land in the first place? A lot of people believe it's because Jacob didn't follow the Lord. He didn't allow God to transform his heart his heart into Israel. And if he would have stayed in that promise that the Lord gave him of Israel, he would have been fine. So in the end, we have four things that we get that help us wrap up the book of Genesis in our first wrap, I'll say. One, God has a plan for history. God's timing is everything. He knows the rising, the fall of nations. He knew that Jesus was going to come from the. He knew Jesus was going to come the first time, and he he is the only one who knows when Jesus is going to come back. Right? Only the Father knows. God has a plan for us when he, within His plan for history. Greeks, Greek theology, they hold or held to what is called death accepting view that they can accept the lord and they can or they can accept their life for what it is and then they are okay with dying because they're going to go to their next thing that's not what we believe our modern world 
is sold out on a death-denying approach. Oh, it can't happen. Oh, um, they're not going to go there. And if after they do die, they automatically go to heaven. Have you ever talked to any modern-day American that thought ever they have a descendant in hell? Over the last 30 years of my life, I've never heard anybody say, oh, he's in hell. He didn't make it. I know he didn't make it. Every one of them assumes that they go to heaven. Every single person. You know, he wasn't the greatest guy in the world, but, well, now he's with Jesus, so that's a lie. No, he's not with Jesus. How do you like to be the pastor that has to do that funeral? What do you say? You say, well, in the moments right before he died, hopefully he picked Jesus, but the way he was living, he didn't get the job done, folks. I ain't got to beat around the bush, and I will tell you and shoot you straight. For We know this. When we follow Christ's example, we have... We believe in a resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ, which is a death-defying attitude. I know that I know that I know that I'm going to heaven because I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I talk to him daily. I read his word weekly. Try to do it daily, right? Um, But Dave knows I don't do it daily, right? Um, I, I didn't get it done last night, so I can't say daily. And so... I'm wa- as I walk through and I walk with the Lord and I have a relationship and I develop that relationship with him and he talks to me. Yes, I'm a fruitcake. The Lord talks to me, right? Then what do I do? What do I do? I give him the praise. I give him the honor. I give him the glory because he is an awesome God. He has saved me from hell. He has saved me from death, Right? God's plan requires our response, and we want to share in his blessing. Jesus warns the church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. It says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I am victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone who has ears to hear... Listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. How are you going to respond to the door? How are you going to respond to the knocking? Where's the door at in the first place? The door is on your heart, isn't it? God has placed eternity on our hearts. We have the door. The latch is on the inside, folks. Only we can open that door from the inside. God designed it that way. And if we want to have a relationship with him, it's an act of surrender of opening that door and letting him come in. That's all it takes. Lord, Lord knows what I've done. I don't deserve that. My sins are too big. Well, good, I got news for you. I didn't deserve it either. And God accepted me. Right? None of us deserve to go to heaven. 
None of us are perfect. That is his standard. If we want to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. I didn't, I didn't live up to the standard. I'm pretty good at not living up to the standard every single day. But praise God for his grace through his son, Jesus Christ. I have an opportunity to open that door, and he will clean my heart every single time. That's what communion's all about, right? It's a reminder that I have opened the door to the Lord, and he is coming in to my heart. And he is going to shape my heart. He's going to shape my life. He's going to put a lamp into my feet so I know the next step to take and a light into my path. How do I know that I'm going to get to heaven? I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. What do I do next? I study God's word so I know the next step. Right? That's why we have youth Bible study. That's why we have men's group. That's why I have a church on Sunday morning. So we can know what to do next. Amen? Yeah, good, you're listening. <laughs> Not really, Shane. Dang it. All right, because I know, God says, for I know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. Because when you pray, I will listen. When does God listen to us when we pray? After we open the door. Okay? Doesn't listen before. He knows you're praying, but you want to see movement in prayer. He wants to see faith in action, right? It's a little bit conditional. God will move. When is he going to transform your life? When you look at him wholeheartedly. I'm going to, I'm going to take the next 30 days, and I'm going to read the book of John, and I'm going to go in and start the book of Romans, and I'm going to look at those 30 days, and I'm going to see what God does with my life after I read those things and to see if God is real. I'm going to put him to the test, and I'm going to see what happens. I did that when I was 17 years old. I have not looked back since. I got to about day 13. No, I got to about day 6. I put him in a two-week trial. God, I'm going to, get my, I'm going to re- pray to you every single day. I am going to read my Bible every single day. And if you're real, you're going to show up. I got to about day six. So that was dumb. That was a foolish thing for me to do. But I knew beyond the shadow of doubt that God was real and that God showed up. And he showed up in my life in a big way. And I haven't looked back since. Like I said, that is what communion is all about. So take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a disciple-making way of life in Christ Jesus. As we go through every part of this day, help us to love you and love the people who cross our path, starting with our family. Don't let us miss the adventures you are sending our way to live and to speak the good news about Jesus today. Draw our hearts to you and to specific people you want us to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. By your word and spirit, transform us into a follower of Jesus who loves you, who loves people, who makes disciples, who makes more disciples. Add infinitum. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.